our passage today um, is going to focus on the gospel uh, reading in just the first uh, section, verses 32 through 34, Jesus' words on the kingdom and on possessions. It's a dense and compact teaching as uh, the words, no, that's really distracting. Man. <laughs> oh boy, that's a precious, but yeah, you're really gonna cause me. <laughs> when Jesus speaks, there's just so much in it. It's so incredible. And um, we're going to notice in our passage today, why don't I just read it again so it's, it's in this. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You notice uh, the prevalence and richness of symbolism in this passage. In fact, it's almost entirely metaphorical. But nestled right within the, uh, the metaphors is verse 33, which is strikingly non-metaphorical by contrast. Um, I think this balance of symbolism here is very important for us. It reminds me of something that one of my favorite Southern authors, if you know Flannery O'Connor, you'll know her short stories are a wild ride. And uh, she says this, and she's somewhat self-deprecating here. There's a grain of stupidity that enters the writer of fiction uh, that she can hardly do without. And this is the quality of having to stare. The longer you look at one object, the more of the world you see in it. Uh, I don't think of it being so much stupidity. I think of it more as courage. Courage to see. In fact, to stare, to take a long, hard look, because we are so often inclined to turn our eyes away in so many areas. So symbols activate our imagination and our inner world. They help us to see more clearly what is obscure to us without their help. It's hard for us to see things. And it's very hard for us to see people the way that Jesus sees them. We need a lot of help to see clearly and to see clearly what's in front of us and around us. And Jesus is going to teach us how to live with our eyes open, to have that grain of stupidity, <laughs> as it were, to stare. So uh, in chapter 12 here, we have a repeated theme, um, which is to fear not, fear uh, can't be commanded away. It has to be mitigated through relationship with God. And that's what a lot of Jesus' words are uh, focusing on here in, in verse 7. Uh, we're more than sparrows, meaning God knows us intimately. In verse 28, we're more than the flowers and the grass, which disappear quickly. God addresses our presence and our permanence, our very existence. Verse 32, he emphasizes his care for us. He sees our vulnerability, our need for leadership and guidance and direction and provision. We're a little flock. He shows us that the only way that fear and anxiety are relieved is when they are driven away from having relationships grounded in love 
you cannot just simply try not to fear. That's just not how it works. When we are afraid, it's like we're standing in the bottom of a well. We comprehend the darkness and the depth and the loneliness, and we see maybe a little bit of inaccessible light up there. It's funny how loneliness and isolation are the paradoxical partners of fear. Fear likes company too. It happens to be that they love isolation. But the presence of someone who stands with us changes everything. I'm sure you can relate uh, stories in your own life where you were afraid and then there was somebody there who was calm and, uh, and not afraid and you derived from them a sense of, of connection and, and, and help. The presence of a loving and capable helper draws us out of the well so that out of the well of fear, we can see the terrain of possibilities. That's the difference. You can't see when you're afraid. That's the point. When you're afraid, it's a restricting process. Your hands close, your body hunches, your eyes close, you can't hear. And so the remainder of Jesus' teaching on possessions and the kingdom simply fails if this concept is not grasped emotionally. It is not possible to not fear. Fear is driven out by love. So John says it this way in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But it's pointless to talk about generosity if we're stuck in this place. Here's how the New Testament scholar Susan Eastman from Duke University, Duke Seminary puts it. She says this, people change when they experience life in a gracious relationship that nothing can sever, that they are unable to destroy that is not contingent in any way on their good behavior or moral congruence. So if you're in a situation where um, your relationship with God is capable of being severed, where you're afraid that you might destroy it, where you feel like it's very contingent and might go away, then you are not, as John says, perfected in love. And you just won't be able to be generous. That's just what fear does. So that kind of gracious relationship delivers us from fear and creates compassionate hearts, seeing eyes, open hands. It prepares us to receive the gift of the kingdom. For us to fully embrace the call to sell our stuff and give to the needy, we must be fully embraced by Christ. Radical discipleship can only be premised on radical grace, the kind of grace that Jesus describes and provides us. So fully developing our experience of God's grace is an essential response to Jesus' words this morning, no less than the call to self-sacrifice. If we wanna hear and respond to Jesus' words this morning, we must take account of our experience of his grace just as much as we need to face the challenging words of our possessions. To obey the one is to obey the other. So we move forward into the gift of the kingdom. Jesus amplifies his affection for the little flock. He says, it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. 
Notice the return of the intimate relational designation for God as Father. We are his children. We're his heirs. There's just so much in that word, Father. He does not begrudgingly give his gifts to us. It is, in fact, his good pleasure to give them. He is not reticent. He is not stingy. And, and so, in his good pleasure, he gives us the gift of the kingdom. Now, gifts are a fundamentally important part of the ancient world. Gifts are actually quite complex. They create complex social bonds that establish power and obligation and indebtedness or loyalty. In Roman culture, gifts were often given by the stronger to the weaker in order to create a sense of obligation or repayment. It's, it's not quite how we think of gift today. And, and this could be a, a, a really long and lengthy subject for you bookish people. Uh, you may know that uh, one scholar just recently came out with an 800-page book on the subject of Paul and the gift, and it's, everybody talks about that. Um, so I won't try to condense 800 pages or whatever that thing is. It's sitting on my desk. It's like a paperweight. Um, it's just to say that it's actually a very sophisticated concept. When you give a gift and you receive a gift, it's just a world of complexity. It can create all kinds of inner turmoil. Am I supposed to return the favor? Is there a sense of obligation? What if I didn't want the gift? What if it's a wrong gift? What if I give the wrong gift? There's just a lot of complexity in that. And as much as we feel that intellect or emotionally, individually, you can imagine in a social context, it can be very complicated. And it certainly was an ancient culture. And by contrast, the gift of God is an expression of his benevolence and grace towards us so that within the kingdom, our receiving from him means that we can freely give to others. It's, it's, it's against the grain. Whereas in Roman culture, a gift that I give to you establishes a sense or can establish a sense of obligation and loyalty to me as though you owe me a debt in return. God's gift doesn't work like that. His gift to me is free and unending so that I can give not back to him but to other people. I can't repay the gift. So in a worldly context, if I could use the word worldly or you know, the, the, the not the kingdom sphere, um, in, the not wor in the worldly domain, we use gifts to strengthen our position. When we give things, it makes us feel better. That's an American way of saying that. Maybe in the ancient Roman world, we say, I give a gift in order now that you owe me something. Here we say, I give a gift because that, sat that fulfills me. I feel so good when I give to the poor. That strengthens my position. Um, I can use gifts to justify myself before God. I, I may be dissatisfied with many dimensions of my life, but at least I'm giving a lot of money. You know, he's got to be pleased with that. Um, and you can see how very slowly, without the context of grace, my, my gift just keeps pushing the recipient farther away from me. They're just in a, they're a means to an end. You know, I'm, I'm kind of pushing a little hard on that. It's not exactly like that. But it, you can see that if I've got a false motive, I'm not really serving the poor. In fact, the poor are some kind of objective, objectification. It, you know... It's not really different than, you know, if I were, as a man, to pick up a, 
you know, a magazine and start looking at pictures. I'm just objectifying something. Grace, though, nullifies our self-serving impulses completely and our quest to justify myself. If I don't need to do that, I won't act like it. When we stop trying to justify ourselves, we aren't as susceptible to using our money and power to improve our positions because we no longer care about that. Grace creates honesty and integrity in our relationships, freedom, liberality. Do you see how you just can't move forward in this if we don't have that gospel bond? Here's how Susan Eastman puts it. Such a gracious relationship deconstructs every aspect of the self in terms of self-justification, defensiveness, boasting, fear, or despair. Such deconstruction creates an arena, or to use Jesus' words, a kingdom, of truth-telling that makes possible a kind of radical accountability precisely because there is no threat of final rejection. Oh, man. I, I just made, I want to live in that arena. You know, that's where I want to dwell. Within the context of the kingdom, gift giving is liberating, not enslaving to everyone, the one who gives the gift and the one who receives. The gift does indeed create a bond and a relationship, but it's not a self-destructing or self-serving bond. So gifts do create a bond. They ought to create a bond, but a bond of love, not a bond of fear. And within that kind of domain that Jesus describes, that Eastman describes, the poor person, of course, we recognize as one of us. We're the poor. It isn't a power structure. We're united in the kingdom movement of reconciliation and restoration in a way that is simply not possible without the fundamental presence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which judges and atones, which sustains relationships with integrity because Christ did what we can't do and gives us what we don't have so that we can be free in every direction. He breathes his life-giving spirit into us. Now we can go forward and we can address stuff. And this is the straightforward direction. What is it in verse 33, I think? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. That's about as simple and clear as you can get. Sell your possessions and give charity. The Greek there is actually give charity. Modern translations say give to the needy because the concept of charity is a little less familiar to us. Sell your possessions, donate your money. It's as simple as it is, and yet there is, is, there is no direction on how to carry this out. There is no guidance, no standard, no repeatable principle, no methodology, nothing. If you look, it, you know, it reminds me of, you know, Steve Martin, one of my favorite gags is he says, do you want to become a millionaire? I can tell, you, I can tell everyone here how you can become a millionaire. How you can become a millionaire. First, Get a million dollars. All right. That's the gag. So if you took Jesus' words to their logical conclu conclusion, nobody would have anything left to give anyone. It's not, he's not giving you that kind of word. He's just letting it sit there in your heart. How we carry out Jesus' exhortation is for us to discern. Keep in mind, 
individuals are unique. That's like a tautology. Individuals are unique. We're, we're going to do it differently. Family systems are complex. The way that family systems attract resources is going to be different. Life has a lot of seasons to it. Things change over time. You may be in a position of having more capacity for something at this season in your life, but not in another. But you have to start with a yes. We have to start by saying yes. Let's start with that. Yes, Jesus, I will sell what I have and I will give to the poor. That's a good place to start. I start to feel a little nervous when I say that. <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway. Because I trust him. Can you say that? Will you allow yourself to utter the word yes? Yes. I will not be attached to my stuff. Rather, I will be attached to Christ. Through him, I will open my eyes and stare, maybe even with a grain of stupidity, into the lives of other people, I will recognize that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is relational. It means I have to live with others. I acknowledge that I'm part of a reconciling movement that binds me to the poor. I will not close my eyes. Now, when we open our eyes, we will find immediately that it is completely impossible to manage what we see. I mean, in three minutes, I opened my eyes and I saw Kentucky flood victims and sub-Saharan poverty and displacement and refugee malaise. It's going to the store. I passed suffering right next door in the economically and especially relationally deprived people all around me. It's impossible. So how do we say yes if we hardly know what we're saying yes to? What does yes look like? Sometimes the answer is easy. We have a lot of stuff that we can reduce and convert to financial resources. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, give your stuff to the poor. He says, sell your stuff. Interesting thought. I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. Think about it just a little bit. It may be that converting to money gives more agency to the person we're giving to. If I just give them my stuff, they may not like it. They may not need it. Anybody who goes to rummage sales knows what's going on. I'm getting rid of the stuff that I think is worthless and I'm hoping you'll pay for it and I benefit. Um, we have a lot of stuff that we can convert into financial resources to give agency to other people. Just an interesting thought. But most often what's required is not just a simple action but actually a lot of discernment. I want to acknowledge that. It requires discernment and dialogue with God and with other people. And the answer is going to bear the marks of your life and your context and your relationships. I, that can be very scary, but I hope it's also very empowering. Discipleship is concrete. There's nothing abstract about this. And as we learn, it creates bonds and it strengthens relationships. So I want to give a couple of examples that I've, have been meaningful to me. Um, in the way that it might be that discernment takes shape. So first of all, yes, discipleship is concrete and it creates bonds. When I think of that feature of giving to the poor, the concreteness and the bond of relationship, I think of my friend Linda Cohen, who uh, died recently of breast cancer, a very special person to me. She and I worked closely together in Jerusalem 
And when I worked in Jerusalem, I would have to pass every day through Jaffa Gate uh, in the old city. The old city is a indescribably strange and magnificent part of Jerusalem. It's what you'll see if you see pictures of Jerusalem. You see the wall. And I worked right on the inside of the wall through Jaffa Gate. And uh, beggars would be there. I passed beggars every day as I walked into Jaffa Gate. And um, there was a, um, there were three women that would sit there. And this is very tragic and very difficult. And Linda and I talked a lot about it. Um, these were Bedouin women. Bedouin are, um, they're, they're, uh, the, the Bedouin in, in the Middle East are nomadic people. And um, a little bit like the Roma, the gypsies, um, uh, they're, they're, they're not really part of society. They're just kind of located in the society. And they live in the valleys around Jerusalem. And they're very poor. And when women uh, were kind of uh, stylized, they, they would sit there. And each of them had a child about the same age, an infant up to about two or three. And they would sit there in the sun all day long. And they were basically pimped by men who would take their collections. And it was a horrible, horrible systemic problem. So giving money to the women was only marginally helpful. It really wasn't solving anything. It was just contributing to a malaise. And Linda was brilliant. She did a lot of things that taught me. First of all, she opened her eyes really wide every day. And she talked to the Lord about it. And she said, I cannot just walk by and do nothing, but I don't know what to do. And um, the Lord gave her some inspiration. And she, uh, they shared no common language. Uh, Linda spoke Hebrew, but these Bedouin did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Arabic. And um, she uh, started catching the eye of one of these women in particular. And she gave her money, uh, but it was unsatisfying. And this went on for some time. Uh, because every day that Linda wa would walk by, the expectation that she would just give more and more money. And it, it wasn't, Linda didn't feel at peace about that. So what she decided is, one day she knelt down to where the woman was, and she just looked into her face and smiled. And she said in English, although the woman couldn't understand, you know, something to the effect of, once a week I will give you money, but every day I will come by and I will say hi to you and I will hold your hand as I walk into the old city. And that's what she did. And the woman's demeanor absolutely fundamentally changed. She accepted the money, but the rest of the days weren't some kind of aggressive begging, which was her job, really. It, her face brightened when she would see Linda. They, they didn't share a common language, but Linda would stop and just peer into her eyes and pray a prayer of blessing and share the gospel, even though she couldn't understand it. That left a very deep impression on me about seeing and listening and connecting. Discipleship is concrete. It creates bonds and strengthens relationships. Maybe you have an opportunity in your life to do something like that. Number two, it's a process that takes place over time. And it isn't always easy. So we don't just kind of put our coins in the box and walk away in a moment. 
It's a process that takes place over time and it isn't always easy. It's an unfolding. It's your story set within the context of other people's stories as you engage them and this is governed by God's providence. Okay, this is a process of your story unfolding within other people's stories governed by God's providence in the matrix of the kingdom. All right, I know that's a lot of content, so I'm just going to read a story. Um, this is a book that's co-edited by uh, Ron Sider. Some of you who uh, have a passion for serving poor people will probably have heard of Ron Sider, who wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Um, he passed away just recently, and I was uh, going through some of the things that um, reminded me of him. And I came across this story that he tells in a book called Churches That Make a Difference. This is a, a short paragraph by Tina. Tina Robbins, who's a, uh, a pastor's wife, an African-American woman, and co-founder of Life in Christ. And here she recalls her family's hardships in the early days of their ministry. It's a short paragraph, but powerful. We'd lost the house. We'd lost our car. We had to file for bankruptcy. I was sitting on the couch with my feet pulled up crying with my Bible in my lap, saying, Lord, Please give me something to read because I can't sleep. I need a nice psalm to read. And so he told me to turn to Ezekiel 2. This woman knows revival, I'm telling you what. That was when God said to Ezekiel, I'm sending you to some people who are hard, and they're that way because their parents were that way, and I don't want you to be afraid of them. Tina says, God told me, the reason you had to give up those things, the house, the car, the bankruptcy, was because the community's perception is that you are wealthy. And in order to reach these people, you can't have much. I want you to start where they're at, and I'll bring you up. And then Tina says, that was the peace I needed to sleep. It's a process that takes place over time. She didn't have that word at the beginning when she lost the house, then lost the car, then filed for bankruptcy. This is at the end of that. She's like at her wit's end, and God gives her something that to her speaks peace and that, that allows her to see the way forward. She's not in the well anymore. Now she's in the terrain. I suggest that for all of us, we're at that point too where we're in a process that takes place over time. What is God saying to you about that? So discipleship is concrete and takes, creates bonds. It's a process that takes place over time within God's providence. Number three, it requires creativity and boldness and action. All of your best. I recently met a man named Perry Bigelow at a conference that Beck and I were at. And uh, I had no idea who Perry Bigelow was. He's an older guy sitting on a sofa. And he walks by and says, Engstrom, Engstrom. He said, is your dad Dave Engstrom? It, it, we were in Kansas or somewhere. Where were we? Kansas? I said, well, yeah. <laughs> From Chicago? I'm like, yeah. Well, he knew my dad when my dad, before he was married. And he hadn't seen him since then. This is 50 years ago. And... Uh, I texted my dad, and, and uh, he remembered Perry Bigelow, 
Anyway, I had no idea who Perry Bigelow was. Turns out that he is one of the most, was, he just passed away, Perry Bigelow. So I had the grace of meeting him just before then. He was one of the most innovative and successful home builders in Chicago and globally. He was an extraordinarily creative thinker and a passionate Christian that had a huge impact. So when I Googled his name, I'm getting all these home builder things about like Perry Bigelow. Well, Perry uh, was a very wealthy man who left everything behind. And he had a passion for the inner city and he moved into North Lawndale, which is one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago. Coincidentally, my great-grandparents were Swedish immigrants in the North Lawndale in a different era. Now, it's a really dangerous place. He had a passion for there. And uh, um, here's what he says. When we speak of, this is something that Perry Bigelow wrote. When we speak of re redistribution in my ministry, we include all resources, wealth, education, time, talent, wisdom, personal networks, professional skill and knowledge. My first action in the inner city was to redesign some homes so they were highly energy efficient for a Christian community development community company. Over the last 15 years, I have redistributed all of the above types of resources and more to inner city people and organizations. I could go on and on about things I learned about Perry Bigelow, but I, time permits me and we're just about done. But here is a massive entrepreneur who used everything that he had for the passion of reaching the inner city in North Lawndale that he did in the context of North Lawndale Community Church, by the way. He moved there, participated in the church, had a community, and then just went to town. Four, it needs to be shaped through personal engagement with the gospel before which we are all poor, before which we are all empowered. Paul and the Macedonians this is a good example of this. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be finishing up here uh, very soon. Paul didn't just simply apply the teaching to serve the poor uh, without discernment. If you remember, the church in Macedonia was the poorest. They were in abject poverty, and Paul went there not to give them If, if, if it were just as simple as saying, oh, we take this principle, give money to the poor, Paul would have said, I'm on a principle rather than I'm on a mission. He would have said, I'm on a principle and I'm going to give money to these Macedonians. And he would have completely missed the opportunity. He was raising a collection all during his last missionary journey to take money back to the poor in Jerusalem, the Jewish poor. Why? Paul's passion, and he was so exercised about this. It's why he was a missionary, was to see the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile and the house of God as a fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. That's his passion. That's why he went to the Macedonians and didn't give them money. He went there and he raised money. And his passion was that that offering would travel back to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and demonstrate the power of God. That's discernment. The key question I want to leave us with today is, what's your treasure? What are you after? What's your heart fixed upon? What do your eyes see? What do you want to see happen? God is asking this of you because it's possible not because it's impossible. He's giving you a real opportunity to say yes, to step into the action of the kingdom, 
so that your heart's content and the heart's content of those around you are aligned in the gospel. Amen.